As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Ancient Egypt was amongst the first major human civilizations in existence. Only really predated by the Mesopotamians and a handful of smaller collectives, Egypt has been the most significant nation in the world for a good chunk of civilized history. The longevity of this society is really hard to fathom. The pyramids, the most recognizable symbol of Egypt's power and prosperity, were constructed about 500 years after the nation took shape. Cleopatra, the last pharaoh of Egypt, died in 30 BC, some two and a half thousand years later. This means that the fall of ancient Egypt happened closer to the construction of the Burj Khalifa than it did to the construction of the pyramids. The vast timeline is part of what makes Egypt, and by extension its economy, so fascinating. It serves as a recorded journal of societal and economic development from the inception of civilization. It also means that the economy of ancient Egypt is not a singular case study, but rather a narrative of growth over an almost unfathomable time frame. Outside of being genuinely fascinating, the economy of ancient Egypt is enlightening to really pull apart because it represents an economy in its most basic form, free from a lot of the noise and distractions that make up modern economics. Targeted inflation, debt cycles, derivatives contracts, and even the financial sector are all crucial components of our modern and hyper-advanced economies. Egypt had none of these. And that's actually great, because it means that we can explore the economy in its purest forms. No frills and nuance, just an economy desperately trying to harvest and allocate resources to satisfy the central economic problem. There are only so many resources available in the world, Technology can help improve what is possible to create, but there is always going to be an eventual limit. Humans, on the other hand, are legendarily hard to satisfy. A human that is well-fed with good shelter will yearn for better food and a better home. Even a lot of today's billionaires don't seem to be materially satiated, regardless of how many yachts and planes and politicians and mansions they own. This causes the issue that economists somehow have to figure out how these limited resources are going to be shared amongst a population of people with unlimited demands. We have explored the central economic problem many times before on this channel, and we will likely explore it many times again because, as the name would suggest, it's literally the foundation of economics. There has been countless attempts to address this problem, everything from unfettered laissez-faire capitalism to universal basic incomes to communism. But, whether they knew it or not, the Egyptians were really the first to give this problem a proper crack. Their solution for most of the history of the civilization was a centrally planned economy for the big picture stuff, with a pinch of personal liberty for smaller scale consumption. There was a strict hierarchy of society with a foundation in farm labor and a pinnacle with absolute power residing in the pharaoh. Egypt was primarily an agrarian civilization, meaning most of the time and effort of the nation's workers was invested into growing enough food to feed the nation's workers. This made farming the core industry throughout Egypt's history. These farms were owned by the state and administered through the temples that lined the banks of the River Nile. 
These were centres of commerce, government and religion all rolled into one. And by reflection, the government of Egypt was organised the same way. All of the food was farmed and delivered to these temples where it would be distributed to workers based on a fair and standardised set of wages paid out in grain. A simple farm labourer, for example, was normally paid around 200 kilos worth of grain per month, depending on their experience and how plentiful the harvest was. These temples would also act as outposts for local government, all while of course still being places of worship. Religion, commerce and government all been administered by a single hierarchy would be like the Catholic Church, the central bank and all branches of government falling under a single umbrella and all been reigned over by a single person. So throughout the dynasties of Egypt, the pharaoh was respected as a god on earth, which was an absolute win for that bloke. The annual harvest is better than ever, you have the pharaoh to thank for that. We are in famine and everyone is starving, your pharaoh must be displeased, try praying harder next time. All jokes aside, this structure was actually a pretty robust blend of absolute control and personal liberty. The rigid hierarchy sounds like it made the vast working class slaves to a bureaucratic social hierarchy, but in reality they had a surprising amount of liberty. For starters, even a lowly peasant could take a grand vizier to the equivalent of court if they were somehow wronged by the vizier's action and could demand compensation from them. A grand vizier was just one step below pharaoh in the government hierarchy. This shows a lot about how in many ways the people of ancient Egypt did have a lot of liberty. For comparison, go and sue a sitting US senator and let me know how that goes for you. This liberty also spilled over into the economy in a really weird sort of way. People were paid in grain, but they could use that grain for pretty much whatever they saw fit. Grain was a currency as much as it was a staple food source. There are depictions and records of cows selling for X amount of grain and a shirt selling for Y amount of grain on a fixed price list. By modern standards this sounds very rigid, but what societies did exist to contemporaries to ancient Egypt took more of a you get what you're given approach to their working class. Now grains for shirts or cows or bottles of wine was the foundation of free market trade where the people of the nation could help solve the central economic problem by picking and choosing what needs were fulfilled and what they went without. It was by no means perfect. Using grain as a currency had its issues of course, but it certainly elevated the standard of living for even the lowliest Egyptian labourer well above the subsistence lifestyle of their tribal peers. In many ways the Egyptian empire was afforded the luxury of personal liberty because of their favourable environment. In fact the empire was originally formed in what went on to be known as the cradle of civilization. We have recently explored the reason why in the modern world cold countries are richer than hot countries in a video on this channel. One of the takeaways of this video was that this correlation wasn't always the case. In fact, for most of human history, the opposite has been true, where wealth has been centralised around warmer climates. This was because life in 3000 BC was not easy. Most people on earth at this point lived in very small communities of subsistence farmers or hunter-gatherers. Managing a group of a few hundred people was hard enough, let alone the hundreds of thousands of people that made up the Egyptian empire. Farming was rudimentary and the larger the civilization, the more mouths there were to feed. Fortunately, the banks of the Nile and the accommodating weather of Egypt were extremely conducive to people and farming. 
the land was home to decent soils, consistent weather, and inbuilt irrigation with seasonal river floods. This is what led Egypt to becoming one of the cradles of civilization. It was effectively life on easy mode for these early humans that did not have the technology to make a home in more hostile areas. It was a human petri dish, a nice, accommodating environment filled with everything humans needed to be comfortable and flourish. What happens when you leave a petri dish out in the sun for a few thousand years? Well, it develops a culture. Because farming was so easy in this region as compared to other areas around the world, it meant more calories could be yielded from smaller plots of land with fewer humans needed to toil the field. This is what allowed the formation of a more complex social hierarchy with scholars and governors, priests and craftsmen, who for the first time in human history did not directly work with the food that they ate. By comparison, human settlements in less hospitable locations needed to have 100% of their population working 100% of the time just to fend off starvation. Food production in Egypt was actually so plentiful that even farmers didn't need to commit themselves to feeding a swelling population year round. The Egyptian calendar was broken into three very distinct seasons. The planting season, the harvesting season, and the flooding season. The planting and harvesting season are pretty self-explanatory, and as bad as the flooding season sounds, it was actually a huge benefit to the nation. The annual river floods raised the riverbanks and deposited rich river soil onto the fields while also spreading water before robust irrigation was invented. Besides making farming even easier, the floods freed up a lot of time. While their fields were submerged underwater, the farmers really couldn't do that much. Now, while I'm sure these hardworking farmers would have been perfectly content to take it easy for these few months, the dynasties had another idea. They decided to dedicate this time towards the mother of all team building exercises. These idle farmers would go on to form the labour force behind local temples, quarries, canals, roads, and of course, the pyramids, under a system that came to be known as the corvée. Every year, able-bodied farmers and labourers were put onto construction projects during the flooding season. This system is today collectively known as the corvée, which was akin to a form of slavery. These workers didn't have much of a choice over whether or not they worked, and they didn't get paid for the time that they put into these projects. But they were free to go back to their regular lives once the flooding season was up. In many ways, this was a form of taxation. They weren't getting the workers to pay back a portion of their paycheck, but they were demanding that they pay back a portion of their time. Although in fairness, it must also be recognised that throughout most of Egyptian history, these peasant workers still need to pay regular tax on their grains. If they didn't pay, they would be forced into additional corvée duty. Now, all of that aside, an interesting side note is that this system was not relegated to the ancient history books. The corvée system used for the construction of public works only fell out of widespread use in 1890, only really stopping because of the occupation of Egypt by the British, who were at that point very anti-slavery. In fact, unpaid labour was instrumental in the construction of the Suez Canal. But of course, in the ancient world, the project at hand was the construction of those pyramids. Everybody from the ancient Greeks to modern archaeologists have called this the product of slave labour, but it wasn't all bad news for the labourers dragged into this work. Sure, the peasant workforce of the nation probably wasn't thrilled about dragging stones around all day, but it did serve as almost a form of vocational training. The pyramids were not just the result of brute force. 
They required meticulous planning, precise workmanship, the use of advanced tools, and the coordination of many men. This was an opportunity for these workers to learn valuable skills that they could bring back to their towns and implement in their regular work. Another big advantage to the common man was that these works were not always taken out on vanity projects like big old pyramids. Oftentimes, this work was done on much more utilitarian projects. Things like roads and canals and public places did a lot of work to increase the quality of life of the average Egyptian. But no individual would invest the time and effort into building them unless they were specifically compelled. It wasn't known to them at the time, but this was due to the tragedy of the commons. We have explored the tragedy of the commons specifically in our video on do we need taxes, but in short, nobody is going to pay for something that they can get for free if someone else does it. If someone else builds a road, then there is nothing stopping other people from using it. If people can get it for free, then why wouldn't the original road builder just wait for someone else to build it? And so on and so forth until no road gets built. By forcing everybody that would benefit from a new road to help build that road, nobody feels hard done by and there is the added benefit of actually having a road. In many ways, this corvée system was akin to military conscription that exists in nations like Taiwan, South Korea, and Israel, or any other country that says it also owns some other country. The conscripted military personnel of these nations are probably not thrilled about the whole ordeal, but it is still an opportunity to gain some skills and experience while contributing to the national agenda, be that building a wonder of the world or angrily shaking a fist at your neighbour. Whatever floats your riverboat. So, since this was one of humanity's first shots at major civilization, how was their economy? Did they solve the economic problem? The central economic problem is really fascinating in the context of ancient Egypt, because the policies of the empire have clearly been made to address how they handle the problem of unlimited desires with limited resources. When it came to personal consumption, it was all about personal liberty. They let the population decide what they demanded, and that's what would be supplied. But they also realised that there were projects in the best interest of the nation that nobody would have individually paid for if they had the option. So that option needed to be taken away. There are industries today that are much better conducted by private enterprise. In the same way, there are industries today that are much better conducted by a government. The economy of ancient Egypt was of course not nearly as complex as the economies of the modern day. But the lessons they learnt over their 3,000 years or so are no less relevant, and that's because economics is a social science. Technology, industries, hyper-advanced financial systems, they have all changed. But people, people will always be the same. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 